Church family, it's wonderful to see you this morning. I'll invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn to Psalm 119. If you are new with us and you don't have a Bible, there's one in the back of the pew in front of you. It is the English translation that I'll be preaching from this morning. And you are free to take that with you as our gift to you. We have extras that we will replace that one with this morning. In a moment, we'll stand and read Psalm 119 verses 9 through 16 in our second uh, sermon in this series through uh, this longest chapter in the Bible. Before we do that, though, uh, something happened this week that obviously bears mentioning uh, in our corporate gathering. This week, the Supreme Court released a groundbreaking ruling that pro-life churches have been praying for for nearly 50 years. (laughs) Today, we thank God for this answered prayer, and we celebrate the lives that will be saved. For those who may be new with us, please know, abortion is not a political issue for our congregation. We consider it a moral issue. Our church unapologetically stands for all life. We do so not only in words, but in action. We don't just tell the world that abortion is sin, but we lovingly show women in unexpected pregnancies how they can choose life. We must recognize, however, that with this ruling, abortion is still very legal in the Commonwealth of Virginia. This now becomes a state-by-state battle. So what do we do? Well, we continue to do what we have been doing all along. As our core value states, we show God's love to all people at all time while giving special support to the unborn, the orphan, and the widow. We continue to make sure that our church can be a place of refuge, comfort, healing, and truth for women who are tempted to end their pregnancies and to those who have done so in the past. The fight for life is not over. Many pro-life Christians will be tempted to believe that the overturning of Roe versus Wade was the end game and that victory is at hand. Listen clearly, my friends. This is in many ways the opening of a new front in the battle for life. Hours after the decision on Friday, I sent a message to our partners at the Tidewater Crisis Pregnancy Center to let them know that we, our congregation, are with them in this battle for the long haul. Today, after small group, you can attend a meeting in the providence of God here about how you can volunteer with our next Mission Great Expectation team working closely with the Crisis Pregnancy Center of Tidewater to disciple and support women who have chosen life. That is the real front line. Now is not the time for rest. Now is the time to recommit ourselves to the cause of defending the most vulnerable among us while expressing our gratitude to the Lord for making the end of abortion possible in our lifetime. So we will pray to that end after we read our scripture. I'll invite you to stand with me now as we read from Psalm 119. We're picking up this morning in verse 9. The psalmist asks, how can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart, I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips, I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. 
I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you this morning grateful for the gathered body of believers who you unite in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We celebrate new life in Christ as we've witnessed baptism and we celebrate new members of our family at the end of the service today. And we thank you, God, for the work that this church does to proclaim the good news of Jesus locally and globally. We're also grateful, God, for how you have placed in our hearts the passion for defending the most vulnerable among us. Thank you, God, that this is a church that doesn't just say we stand for life, but that puts boots to the ground in the defense of this cause. God, we thank you that there are places in our land today where abortion clinics are closing. And we pray, God, that that will happen in our own commonwealth. Until then, Lord, and even beyond that point, would you help us to be faithful in showing your love to the most vulnerable, to showing your love to women who feel as if they have no other choice, showing your love and kindness and the goodness of your gospel to those in this great need, we pray. Thank you, God, for what you have done and what you'll continue to do. Speak to us now through your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Last week, Pastor Jay introduced this new series to us that we will do over the course of the next three summers. So just the first seven sections of Psalm 119 will we consider this summer before moving into a new series through the Gospel of Mark in August. He told you that this is a unique psalm. Not only is it by far the longest chapter of the Bible, longer than many other books of the Bible, but it is arranged in a unique fashion based on the Hebrew alphabet. And so today we take up the second section, which is an acrostic poem. This would be uh, all, every line in this poem would start with the Hebrew letter of Baith, which would be our B, although when you translate it into English, obviously that is not the way that it reads for us now. But we turn our attention to what does it mean to live a pure life? The main idea of today's sermon is that guarding our motivations, thoughts, words, and actions according to God's word allows believers to live a pure life that pleases the Lord. The psalmist starts this section with, I think, one of the most important questions we can ask. How can a young man keep his way pure? Now, your thoughts may be, well, I am not a young man. Maybe you're a woman. Maybe you're not, no longer young. That doesn't mean that today's sermon is not for you. Certainly it is. But the psalmist is leaning into something thousands of years ago that is still true today. And that is that all of us struggle with keeping our ways pure and that it is a struggle that is seen often in a profound way in the life of young men. 
This is really the million dollar question, isn't it? If this is even, is this even possible with all of the external impurity so readily available to us now? We are bombarded in our culture with impure images, temptations, thoughts, actions. We live in a culture that affirms, not just quietly, but overtly now, impure lifestyle. But the psalmist doesn't answer his question by telling us what to avoid. He doesn't answer his question by telling us what companies to boycott. He answers his question in the positive by telling us what we should pursue. This isn't a sermon about what not to do. It is a sermon about what to fill your life with so that your life can be found pure before God. The psalmist answers his question, how can a young man keep his way pure? With a simple answer, by guarding it according to your word. All of Psalm 119 draws us to the treasure that is God's word. And this second section of Psalm 119 draws us to treasure God's word in such a way that it leads us to a pure life. In Proverbs chapter 9, the author of Proverbs there, in the first part of Proverbs, Solomon writing to his son, desiring for his son to grow in the way of wisdom, paints for us a contrasting picture between God's way and the world's way. He begins with God's way. He says, wisdom has built her house. She has hewn her seven pillars. She has slaughtered her beast. She has mixed her wine. She has also set her table. She has sent out her young women to call from the highest place in the town. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. To him who lacks sense, she says, come, eat of my bread and drink of the wine I have mixed, leave your simple ways and live and walk in the way of insight. Solomon offers to us the same answer for walking in a pure life that the psalmist does. We do so according to the wisdom of God found in his word, but he contrasts that with the wisdom and folly of the world. He writes in verse 13 of Proverbs 9, the woman folly is loud, she is seductive and knows nothing. She sits at the door of her house. She takes a seat on the highest place of the town, calling to those who pass by, who are going straight on their way. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. And to him who lacks sense, she says, stolen water is sweet and bread eaten in secret is pleasant, but he does not know that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. Worldly wisdom is seductive and leads to impurity, but God's word provides what is needed for life. And as we walk in the life that is provided through Jesus Christ in obedience to him, we walk a pure life before him. So for all in this room, but let me just speak to who the psalmist is directly addressing here, to the young men in the room, hear me. The answer to your struggle of impurity 
It's found in the word of God. (laughs) For all of us, the answer to our struggle of, should I follow the world's way? How can I really please God? How can I live a life unto him? The answer is found in treasuring God's word. If we guard our lives by God's word, we can live an obedient life unto him. <laughs> we have far overcomplicated this. The simple answer is live as the word of God instructs us to live. And what we will see through the rest of this section of Psalm 119 is that the psalmist in poetic form, so we will take it out of order because I wanted to structure the, structure the sermon in a way that makes sense to us progressively. So we'll consider these verses out of order this morning. So in a poetic way, what the psalmist then does is he shows us how both in, in our motivation, in our thoughts, in our words, and in our actions, we treasure the word of God unto purity. So number one, purity is found in guarding your motivations according to the word. Verse 10 begins, with my whole heart, I seek you. Verse 11, the psalmist says, I have stored up your word in my heart that I may not sin against you. So the psalmist begins by not addressing our actions, not addressing our words, not even addressing our thoughts, but addressing our hearts. Our hearts are where Our desire lives. Now you may say, no, our heart is the thing that pumps blood. Yes, that is true. But when we speak of the heart, we often speak of so much more. And that's not new or unique to our culture. That has been the way for a very, very long time. Even the ancients spoke of the heart as being the center of desire and passion and that which is truly important to you. And so the psalmist says, with my whole heart, with my desire, with my motivations, I will seek you and that I will store up your word where, not in my brain first and foremost, but in my heart that I may not sin against you. So this then begs the question of the most important piece of advice that I think people are given today that leads people so wrong. Often people will say, to, to young people, you, you need to follow your heart. What does your heart tell you to do? Be true to your heart. Have you heard pe- people have probably given you that advice? Unfortunately, there may be even some people in this room that have given that advice to their children. Can I implore you, stop doing that. You wanna know why? Because Jeremiah 17 tells us that the heart is deceitful above all else and is desperately wicked. This is the true nature of our sinful hearts, that we are born with a a desire for sin, we are born with a desire for impurity, and our hearts outside of Christ will lead us astray. So what do we need? We need new hearts. We need hearts that are birthed through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our hearts are destructive. Our desires are wicked. Our motivations are self-centered. And if we are honest about ourselves, every person in this room, not just the young men, every person in this room recognizes that about the sinful nature of your heart. We need new hearts. 
that are impacted by the word of God, that are changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ so that our desires and motivations then change. And this is what the psalmist is speaking to when he talks about storing up the word in our heart. He's saying, I'm going to replace those sinful desires and motivations and passions that are within me with desires and motivations and passions that are influenced by the word of God. He continues in verse 14. In the ways of your testimony, I delight as much as in all riches. Think about the word delight there for a moment. What is it that you delight in? Husbands, I hope you delight in your wife. Wives, I hope you delight in your husbands. D delight is this thing that, 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 we, that drives us to, to be passionate about. But so often our sinful desires will drive us to be passionate about sinful things. We'll delight in power, we'll delight in influence, we'll delight in finances, we'll delight in recreation, we'll delight in all kinds of worldly pleasures instead of delighting in that which God has set before us to delight. And the psalmist says, in the ways of your testimonies, which is just another way of saying your word, I delight. And then he says, as much as in all riches, meaning I, the psalmist, values the scripture above all else. Elsewhere in the book of Psalms, speaking about this same idea, uh, a psalmist writes in chapter 19, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The command of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. So he's affirming just over and over the value of God's word. And then notice what he says, starting in verse 10, more to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and dripping off the honeycomb. Moreover, the buy them as your servant warned in keeping them, there's a great reward. Barry, can we go to the title slide of this series? The graphic, there we go. There's two arms in this graphic. One holding a, a common representation of God's word, right? A Bible. The other holding gold, crowns. Here, here's, here's what's represented in this image. Here's why we chose this to, to be the image for this sermon series. It is because if we were to ask which one of these would you want which one of these do you find would you find most valuable if we're asking that in the context of the church people would often give lip service to scripture but if we actually looked into our lives and said which one of these do we really hold to be most valuable do we really think the word of god is as valuable as a sack full of gold and a crown representing authority in this world there are many maybe many seated in this room right now that would sacrifice the truth of god's word to have such riches and here's the truth of psalm 119 
The truth of Psalm 119, it is calling us to our deepest desires, motivations, values to say above all else, I'm going to treasure that which God has said is true. I would trade away every penny in my bank account and every position of power and authority and promotion that I have to hold true to that which God has said makes me right with him. So first, first and foremost, we have to value the word of God deep in our hearts. It must be our motivation. It must be our passion. It must be our desire. And then when we change our desire, our passion, our motivation, then our thoughts begin to change and purity is found in guarding your thoughts according to the word. Our motivation ultimately becomes our thoughts. You see, you don't often think about your, intentionally think about your motivations. They're just your motivations. But then you end up thinking about them because that is the desire of your heart. And the desire of your heart becomes the thoughts of your brain. And so he says in verse 12, the psalmist, blessed are you, O Lord, teach me your statutes. Guarding your thoughts according to the word of God requires that we desire to be taught the word of God. It, 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 it's a requirement. We can't know, we don't, if we desire the word of God, we'll want to be taught the word of God because we can't know the word of God if we don't sit under the teaching and instruction of the word of God. Now you may think this is a little self-serving that I'm only talking about this right now, but hear me. If this is the only Bible teaching you sit under, in, in a whole week, you know, you come here, you listen to me, then you come back next week, you listen to me. You're getting something, but you're not getting everything. There's lots of ways that the scripture is taught to us outside of the corporate gathering of God's people. Doesn't mean we should forsake the corporate gathering of God's people. This is very important. But so is going to a small group and studying the word of God together. So is studying the word of God on your own, allowing the Holy Spirit to speak to you about what God is saying through his word. The psalmist in Psalm 86 says, teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. We must be motivated to learn the word of God. Know this, if your desire is to walk in purity, this is a sermon about purity. If your desire is to walk in a pure life, but don't have a desire to know God's word, you will never succeed in walking a pure life. You'll never do it. If your Bible sits dusty, six days out of the week and you only break it out to come here once, you're gonna really struggle in actually walking in purity that God calls you to. Why? Because we need to know what God has said to us in his word that begins with changing our desire and then that desire begins to change the way we think. In verses 15 and 16, the psalmist writes, I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Notice the number of times just in those two short verses that the psalmist addresses the way that we think, that we're meditating, not to empty our mind, but to fill it with the precepts of God that the psalmist calls us to fix our eyes on his ways. The eyes 
or the window, right? That's how we perceive. I will delight. There it is again, speaking to our motivations. But then he says, I will not forget your word. The psalmist is calling for a mind so full of scripture that our first thought goes to God's word above all else. When you're confronted with temptation in this life and you regularly give in to it, one of the reasons for that could very well be that you've not filled your mind with that which God has given to you to equip you to withstand that very temptation. That our first thought should be to scripture because we desire it. Let me just give you a couple examples of this. One from the Old Testament. When the, the mantle of leadership in, in Old Testament Israel, um, after the exodus and before the conquest of the promised land is going to pass from Moses to Joshua, the Lord speaks. And here's what he says to Joshua in part in verse eight of Joshua chapter one. The book of the law shall not depart from your mouth but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do all that, is a court, all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. Joshua was called to meditate on the word of God so that then he could be careful to do all that is in it if he hoped to successfully lead Israel into the promised land. The apostle Paul writing to the church at Philippi in Philippians chapter four, calls them to change the way that they think. He says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Scripture, church family, is where we find true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, and praiseworthy things. So what is it that we should think about? We should think about God's word. When we change our passion over to God's word and we say, I desire it more than everything else, it then begins to influence the way that we think. We desire to sit under its teaching. We desire to memorize it. We desire to meditate on it. And when we are faced with choices, when we're faced with temptations, when we're faced with anything this world can throw at us, the more we fill our minds with the word of God, the easier those things are recalled then in our mind and we can know what God wants us to do. We can know how God wants us to respond because above all else, we have treasured God's word and filled not only our hearts, but also our minds with what God has said. Number three, purity is found in guarding your words according to the word. Our motivations become our thoughts. Our thoughts then become our words. Verse 13, with my lips, the psalmist writes, I declare all the rules of your mouth. The psalmist says, the Lord has spoken and with my lips, I am going to say the things that the Lord has said. That's just what he said. With my lips, I declare all the rules of your mouth. The song, there, there's a lot theologically wrapped up here in this, these short few little words, right? The psalmist is affirming that the word of God is the word of God, that it is from God to us and that it should become our desire, motivation, our thoughts, and then our thoughts become our words. Do you speak the word of God to your friends, to your family, to one another? 
I wonder if when someone from your small group calls you for a piece of advice, is your first you know, instinct to give them worldly advice or is it to point them to the word of God? When your children come to you with an issue, is your, is your initial instinct to give them good, quote unquote, good American parenting advice or is it to point them to the word of God and say, this is what God has said. Let my lips declare what God's lips have already said. In Proverbs 18, we're told the importance of our words. We read death and life are in the power of the tongue. Notice this. You, my friend, we have the power in our tongue of death and of life. Why? Because we can speak pure God-honoring words from his scripture, or we can give people psychobabble nonsense that would be wholly affirmed by our culture, and embraced by the ways of the world, thinking as if that's right. But let, let, me, let, let me help you. There's death over here, but in the word of God, there is life. They may not be the words people want to hear, but they're desperately the words people need to hear because in the word of God is life. There's life. So what do your words reflect about you? In Luke chapter six, Jesus talks about who we are. He uses a metaphor of a tree. He says, for no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does bad trees bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. That makes sense, right? Apple trees have apples, orange trees have oranges, so forth. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. But he doesn't stop there. Notice what Jesus, how Jesus concludes this teaching. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. Kind of fruit the tree produces. And then he speaks of our lives, the tree that is our lives, as being defined by the words that come out of our mouths. And what words come out of our mouths? The words that come out of our mouths are the things that we think. And what are the things that we think? The things that we think are our motivations, desires, the things of our heart. You see how this builds, yeah? We change our motivation and desire towards the word of God. We sit under the teaching of the word of God. We memorize the word of God. We fill our brains with the word of God. And then what ends up happening? We become speakers of the word of God. It's just a natural outflowing because it's the kind of tree that we are. This is the kind of tree that we should all want to be. God, make me into the kind of tree that every time somebody asks me a question, I'm able to say, here's what God has said about this. Here's how God's word guides us in this. Here's how we can find life in this because God has spoken. But it doesn't end with our words. You see, our motivations become our thoughts, our thoughts become our words, and so often our words become our actions. And purity is found in guarding your actions according to the word. Back in verse 10, we already read the first part of that. With my whole heart, I seek you. So there's that desire, right? Desire goes through our thoughts. Thoughts go through our words. Verse, the end of verse 10, let me not wander from your commandments. What is wandering? <laughs> wandering is action. Wandering is walking. 
And so very often in scripture, walking is uh, a, a metaphor for the things that we do in life. Now, so often when we think about living a pure life, all we focus on is action. When we talk with young people about, about sexual purity, what we wanna tell them is a list of things they have to avoid the kinds of relationships they shouldn't be in, the kind of activities that they shouldn't engage in. It, we start so very often with action. And if you wonder why, as, as we look back in hindsight of like the True Love Waits movement of the 1990s and the I Kiss Dating Goodbye of the early 2000s, if we wonder why that so often failed, why what was known as purity culture so often failed, which by the way, it did in so many ways failed, it's because it only addressed action. But you're gonna notice only about six minutes of this sermon are about action. Most of it is about desire, thoughts, and words. Because if we don't change those things, all we're doing is piling on legalistic rules for people to follow. And eventually they get out from under our control and they rebel against those legalistic rules. Not to a person, not every one of them, but so many of them. Because we said, all we focused on was what people were doing instead of what people were desiring, instead of what people were thinking, instead of what people were saying. Action is the final outcome, that when we change our desires and our thoughts and our words, then our actions, we end up not wandering because we have the foundation that we need. Back in Proverbs, there's so much in Proverbs about this subject, this is why I keep going back to Proverbs. Back in Proverbs chapter six, my son, Solomon writes, keep your father's commandments and forsake not your mother's teachings. Bind them on your hearts always. Tie them around your neck. When you walk, they will lead you. When you lie down, they will watch over you. And when you wake, they will talk with you. For the commandment is a lamp and the teaching a light and the reproof of discipline are the way of life. Notice the progression that Solomon goes through here. It's about binding these things in your heart. It's about changing your desire, about sitting under the teaching so that when you do start walking away from home, they will lead you. When you do start lying down away from home, they will be with you when you wake up. When you do start talking on your own, they will be your words. They will be a lamp to your feet. The word of God guides our actions. The word shows us how to live a pure life, but we must know it, believe it, think it, and speak it for it to have the kind of effect that is spoken of here in his word. Oh, let us change. I'm not just the young people in the room for every single one of us. I've had to ask this question. I've prepared this this week. God, what desires are in my heart that you need to replace with a desire for your word? God, what thoughts are in my mind that you need to replace with the thoughts that are your ways? What words do I speak that you need to replace with your words? And what actions do I have that will then be changed because of it? So what? The command for every Christ follower is a life of purity. Make no mistake, let me stop there just quickly. The command for every Christ follower is a life of purity. And he has provided his word in order that we might live pure lives. So we are commanded, but we are provided for. In Romans chapter 12, we, we see this same juxtaposition. 
Paul says in the first verse of Romans chapter 12, I appeal to you therefore brothers by the mercy of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. For Paul raised a Jew of Jews who understood clearly the necessity of a pure sacrifice. When he says that we are to present our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, Paul is definitively saying, calling us to a pure life before God. Sacrifices that pleased God in the Old Testament were pure, without spot or blemish. But know this, obedience to the law does not make us pure. So maybe you're here today and all you hear is legalism. All you hear is me telling people what to do and what not to do. The reason that you hear that is because you think we can somehow gain purity by our works and actions. And let me help you, my friend. You can't and you won't. There is not a person in this room that is pure because of what they have done. The pure people in this room, the people in this room who have done what the scripture has said and presented their bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, have done so through the death of Jesus Christ alone, who is our only pure sacrifice for sin. If you're pure today, you're pure because of Jesus. If you're not pure today, the call to you right now is to believe in Jesus so that you can be. Make no mistake. You'll never work your way to purity, but Jesus will make you pure. So believe the gospel today. Believe in Jesus alone and be saved if you are not. But for those who are, the command of our lives is to be living sacrifices, holy and acceptable. The command for every Christ follower is a life of purity, but God provides the way for us. Verse two of Romans 12, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. You see, once we come to faith in him, we then walk in his purity by renewing our minds according to his word. When we call people to repentance, do you know what we're actually calling people to? We're calling people to change the way we th they think. That's what the word repent means. It means to change the way that you think. We're calling people to renew their minds, to turn away from sin and self and turn towards Christ. And when we turn away from ourselves and turn towards Christ, it begins a life of changing the way that we think. And then we renew step by step, moment by moment, our minds. Not, not by the world's way not by our own invented system, but by the very word of God. And by doing so, that is how we can discern what the will of God is. What is, as Paul writes, good and acceptable and perfect. Think about those words as this, as pure. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding his life by the word of God. Because if we've come to faith in Jesus, he makes us pure. And then the call on our lives is to walk in that purity. And the way that we walk in that purity is by having our motivations, our thoughts, our words, and our actions guarded by God's word. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you. You don't expect us to do something that is impossible. 
but that Jesus did it for us, making a way for us to be pure sacrifices in our lives towards you. And that as we think about the treacherous path that we walk in a culture inundated with impurity and a world that has given itself over to impure ways that you have provided for us your very word, the words of your mouth that can then become our desires and our thoughts and the words of our mouth so that it will be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Help us to walk in the way of purity. As we will sing here in a moment, God, would you give us clean hands and a pure heart found only in Jesus. Let us be a church that walks in that obedience, we pray in Christ's name, amen. This is the call to respond that we would cry out to God, oh God, help me to be pure. Change my desires, change my mind, change my words, change my action. And if you've been relying on your own works to make you pure with God and you hear today that you can, at the end of the service, I'll be in the lobby, would you come find me? Let me talk about how you can, talk to you about how you can believe in Jesus. You can stop trying and start following. So church family, let's stand together as we respond and worship.